Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hola, I'm Rick Martinez. I am a cookbook author, video host, and lover of coconut Thai curry. And I'm Carla Lolly Music. I'm also a cookbook author and video host, and I currently have 17 different kinds of hot sauce in my fridge. What? Wait, 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 wait. Why do you have 17 <laughs> hot sauces in your fridge? I can't think of a reason why not. <laughs> That's it. That's all I need to know. <laughs> Rick and I have been solving and laughing our way through food problems together for more than a decade in test kitchens, in videos, and at magazines. And now we're doing it here on Borderline Salty, the show where we take your calls, boost your confidence, and make you a better, smarter, and happier cook, just like us. Today we'll weigh in on mushrooms, marinades, and not scary whole fish. Not scary at all. But before we dive in, Rick, tell me something good. You are in for a treat today because I want to talk about sticky rice. Oh, love it. I know, I know. It's, it's funny because anytime I eat rice, I think of you. Ah, It's like your number one carb. And so it's like slowly becoming my number one carb. I was in Toronto recently and I was lucky enough to get a table at Pai, this amazing Thai restaurant. And while I was there, the chef actually came out and sat with me. And Aww. we had this amazing conversation about the origins of the restaurant. And the name Pai is a reference to the town in Thailand where she grew up. And as she's talking about seven dishes of steamed sticky rice, jasmine rice, other rices just land on the table. And my eyes, of course, glaze over with glee and delight. Wow. And my heart starts beating wildly. And <laughs> she says, I'm going to show you the way that we used to eat rice in pie as children. Mm. The sticky rice were steamed in banana leaves, and so she opens one up, and so you get this, like, perfume of the rice and the banana leaves. And she takes a spoon, she scoops a little piece of rice, probably like a, maybe a little bit over a tablespoon of rice, and then she starts kneading it with her fingers, basically just squishing it into a solid mass mm. and creates a little ball she says it completely changes, obviously, the texture, but also just, like, brings out more of the internal flavors and aromas. Wow. 
it had kind of like the texture of mochi. Yeah. You just get this pop, like this really like amplified flavor of the sticky rice. And and even the gluten, I don't know if it like is more developed when you do this, but it seemed to be more developed. Right. And it was like a combination of like a tapioca ball meets mochi meets glutinous rice in your mouth at one time. It was amazing. These are like all my favorite textures and flavors and I can smell it. It was just such an incredibly pleasant restaurant experience. Go Canada. Carla, tell me something good. Well, the good thing for me this week is that I got to do something I haven't done in a while, which was write a newsletter. Ooh. I basically took a hiatus from writing after That Sounds So Good came out because I was so depleted. I had none of those muscles. They were just falling off the body, and I just really needed a break. And I guess because I'm a masochist or something, I've, like, (laughs) missed writing and missed having that deadline. So one of my favorite things to kind of talk about is buttermilk. I always have buttermilk in the fridge, but just the act of kind of pulling those details together to write it up for other people, I, like, unlocked new uses for buttermilk that had not occurred to me before. Mm -hmm. And it was really fun, and it just, like, reminded me of— why food is so much fun and things I've never done before, like poaching. Have you ever poached fish in buttermilk? Ooh, not in buttermilk. Yeah. That sounds really good. Yeah, there were a few recipes that popped up for like a buttermilk lemony brine that you could put aromatics in and then poach something easy like salmon And it sounded so good and so cool. And so people are always saying, oh, well, I bought buttermilk to bake biscuits or to make this pancake thing. And then I didn't know what to do with it. And then I threw it away, which is like so upsetting because it literally never goes bad. Right. So it was kind of fun to come up with like 10 different things you could do with it. Yum. Yeah. Love buttermilk. Yeah. And never throw it away. Just make a cake. I love buttermilk cake. Mm. It is so good, so tangy. Oh, so delicious. I never have leftover buttermilk because I'm always like, I'll just fry something. And, uh, yeah, I'll be good. It's cool. When in doubt. Just fry it. <laughs> I am ready to hop into some of these color cues. Hi, Rick and Carla. I'm Sarah. I'm really scared of whole fish. And it freaks me out because... I always see them in the supermarket and I want to buy them, but I have no idea what to do with like the head and the eyes and the scales and the bones. And I honestly just don't understand how to cook them. You know, when you think about it, a whole fish in the supermarket or wherever is one of the very few times that we as Americans have to like see the whole animal that we were cooking. Like everything else has been broken down and taken down to sight. You don't have to come face to face with the eyes, the tail, the whole thing. Right. Fear of whole fishing is a very real fear. And it's such a real fear that I actually have a recipe in That Sounds So Good called Not Scary Whole Grilled Fish. Because I know that it's frightening, but it doesn't have to be. (laughs) So a couple of things to look for Everyone's going to tell you you want to look at the fish's eyeballs and look at the gills and smell the fish to make sure that it's fresh. So the eyes should be really clear and glassy and the gills should be bright red and it should smell good. 
But another just really easy, straightforward thing is like ask the fishmonger because they're going to want to sell you the best product that they have in the case. Don't be afraid that they're going to try to be offloading the fish (laughs) they have to get rid of. If you connect with that salesperson and say like, I'm cooking a whole fish for the first time, like what's the freshest fish in the case? Like they're going to tell you they handled all these fish, they know. There's something really dramatic about a whole fish or even a butterfly fish that, to me, just adds to the experience of eating it. So, you know, imagine, like, the Thanksgiving turkey. If the Thanksgiving turkey came out as little turkey tenders, you know, it wouldn't be the same. (laughs) You know, you want to see that bird as the centerpiece. And in a lot of cultures, and honestly, in a lot of of places in the U.S., like, they will cook a whole fish. Yeah. You know, they'll fry the whole fish or bake it or grill it. I actually get mad in restaurants where they're like, would you like us to take it off the bone for you? And it's like, no, no, that's why I'm ordering the whole fish. I don't want it to be cold and like, you know, sanitized for me. Like I'm in it because I want to pick like every morsel of fish off of each bone. But it's also, you know, cooking it and serving it whole is really easy. So Doing it for the first time, I wouldn't grill it, and I wouldn't try to do it in your biggest skillet stovetop. I would get a whole fish, and I think something around three three to four pounds is good for three to four people. Get that fish home. It'll be scaled. You know, you're not going to have to do any of that stuff. It'll be scaled. It'll be gutted. It will have eyeballs. And season it really generously outside and inside. Really important because like fish skin is almost a waterproof layer. You want the skin to taste good, but if you only season the skin, it's not going to get through to the flesh. So season it inside, slice some lemon, whatever herbs you have in your herb drawer, like put them in there. You don't have to tie it. You don't have to do anything and just roast it. And you know when fish is done because you can make a little incision at the thickest part of the filet, which is going to be closest to the top fin is where it's like meatiest and thickest up there. And you can make a little incision. And if the meat kind of pulls away, it's cooked through. If it's still hanging on, that means it's not, you know, 100% going to pull away from the bone. Yeah, you should just be able to like literally spoon the flesh off of the skin. Exactly. A lot of times too, and, and if you have this, I would recommend using it as well. If you have a rack that you can set inside your sheet tray, I would put your fish on that as well because that'll help with the air circulation. So you'll get hot air circulating around the fish to cook it evenly. Smart. And also like if the fish sits directly on the metal baking tray, that part of the fish will cook faster. Right, true. So just a rack will help in all of that. Yeah, give it a try. I think this curiosity should be indulged. Completely. It's time to take the plunge, no pun intended. (laughs) Borderline Salty, you've reached us during working hours. Hi, this is Derek. I am about to move to a new apartment, and it will be my first time in my 29 years of life using a gas range instead of an electric cooktop. And I was just wondering if there's anything I need to know besides don't leave the gas on, it will kill you. Well, he's covered the biggest tip, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, let's just give like a round of applause for, yay, gas, a gas Welcome range. to the 20th century. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, life is just about to get so much better. When I think of like coil electric stoves, I think about my parents who bought their house in 1974. So yeah, gas is definitely 
I was going to say a step up, but I mean, honestly, like you could say induction is better. Like, I think it's all about personal preference. I like looking at the blue flame. Yes. I love fire. Yeah. I think induction is more efficient, but there's something very almost primal about seeing fire and being able to control visually your flame. Yeah. I mean, people ask me this question a lot when they're deciding what kind of stove to get. And people are like, is gas better? Is induction better? Like, people do really love their induction. They go very fast from zero to boiling. But you can't see it. And I've cooked on induction, and it's the same thing. I'm like, like turning the (laughs) dial. It doesn't have the same, like, drama, you know? A hundred percent. So what I would do first, just to get you acclimated to your new cooking sitch, I would just get a pot of water like you were going to make pasta, put it on the stove, turn it on high, and then just time it to get a sense for how long it's going to take to boil water. Think about like all the things that you would normally cook on your electric stove. So like if you made eggs every morning, right? So fry an egg the way that you would normally fry it on the same pan but on gas, and then just see the difference. Yeah. You're probably going to find that your electric stove got a lot hotter, so you might have cooked your egg on medium, medium high, and you might need to put your gas stove on full high to get it to the same level of friedness that you are used to. I also think that one thing that I had to learn is that Most of your pots and pans, even a really thick, heavy cast iron or enamel cast iron, you're going to have a hot spot on the bottom of the pan where the flame touches the metal. Yeah. So you'll know, like, if you're searing a steak or a piece of chicken, that's where you want to put your meat or anything that you want to get seared. But if you've got, like, something that's, you know, a a delicate vegetable, for example, you may want to avoid that area or turn your fire down. Yep. Have fun. Yeah. Welcome to Borderline Salty. How can I help you? Hi, Rick and Carla. My name is Austin Marlowe. I have a few questions about marinade. I've always wondered why oil is a required ingredient in marinades. Also in marinades, I've always wondered what is the limit or guidelines for how much acid you can put in a marinade and for how long it can be. Because obviously that makes it taste great, but also I know if it goes too far, it can make meat really gross. So those are my marinade questions. Love a good marinade. Yeah, this is really interesting to me. I think just to address the oil thing up front, and I say this all the time when I'm cooking, oil is a flavor and oil also carries flavor. Right. Like there's some ingredients and flavors that actually need oil to be fully released. Correct. And then there's others that don't. So it's not always necessary in a marinade. It just depends on what you're putting into it. Right. So garlic, dried spices, all need oil to help carry those flavors into whatever ingredient you're marinating. Yeah, I think if you pull up a recipe for a marinade that has a very large amount of marinade in relation to the other flavorings or seasonings that are going into it, like something is off there. But I do think a little bit of oil is a way to kind of get the marinade ingredients to mingle with each other and then also to get onto the whatever it is that you're marinating, whether it's a protein or a vegetable or whatever. It's the vehicle. And if you don't have oil, 
then you have dry rub, which is also great. <laughs> you know, I love a dry rub. I think I dry rub more than I marinate, but there are other liquids besides oil that are incredibly flavorful. Yeah. I use a lot of alcohol when I marinate. So either wine or beer mm. or, you know, soy sauce, um, sake, mirin. You had a delicious, like, spicy mezcal or spicy tequila marinade, I remember. Yeah, yeah. Was it pork chops? No, it was uh, fajitas. Oh, yeah. Fish sauce and mezcal. Oh, yum. Which is a really, really good combo. And if you're using a good mezcal, you'll get smokiness, you'll get a little sweetness. The alcohol is a, a tenderizer of protein. The acid and the alcohol are going to help tenderize that meat. Right. Like all your citrus juices, you know, similarly, any kind of a marinade that has vinegar, it's not necessarily bad. They do have a tenderizing quality, the acidic ingredients. But, you know, sometimes that's really beneficial. Sometimes, yeah, it can get weird and mm -hmm. kind of make things spongy and dry. Like with a delicate seafood, you would pull that off. I mean, I think the way that I always look at marinades, whenever I'm writing a recipe, I always tell people, regardless of the ingredient, even if all you have is 10, 15, 20 minutes, that is even a 20-minute soak in a marinade is going to give you a little more flavor than nothing at all. Mm -hmm. So if you have 30 minutes, great. If you have an hour, better. If you have two, even better. And depending on the type of ingredient that you're marinating, you can go up to 8, 12, 24, sometimes 48 hours. And the way that I think about it, any seafood product, any vegetable is probably going to be best between 30 minutes and an hour. Mm -hmm. And if you've got a lot of acid or a lot of citrus in the marinade, then for the seafood, you definitely want to stop at 30. Right. Never go above 30 or else you're just going to make ceviche. For cuts of meat that are chopped small, so if you, let's say, for example, you had chicken breasts cut into small pieces or a thigh cut into small pieces, boneless, skinless, those things are going to take 30 to maybe up to eight hours, depending on how concentrated your marinade is. And then I think on you know larger and tougher cuts of meat like pork and beef, those can definitely take the 24 to almost 48 hours. Like I've taken chuck roast or pork shoulder and I've I've marinated those for a lot longer. So up to 24 to 48 hours. And those are totally fine. The only thing that you want to be really careful of is anytime you use pineapple. Mm -hmm. Pineapple has the effect of turning pork into mush within like an hour. Yeah, there's a crazy enzyme in pineapple juice that just will break down protein really fast. Like literally to pudding. It's such a weird thing that happens. So I think in general... Marinades should be delicious. Like, you should taste your marinade, and it should taste really good. It should be concentrated. Like, if it feels diluted, it's a waste of time and money. Mm -hmm. And then would you say the more concentrated the marinade, the less time you need to marinate? Or is that more about the size of the protein that you're going to marinate it in? I think it's the size of the protein. Because, again, you know, like, you can have a very concentrated marinade. After 30 minutes, the only flavor that you're going to get is within the first couple of millimeters of the protein surface. Right, right. It's not going right. to get into the center. And that, to me, is what you want. You want to get the flavor throughout the piece of meat or, or vegetable that you're marinating. Totally. Rick? Yes? We got a live caller on the line. Oh, my God, I love live callers. 
you're on the line. Hi, Rick. Hi, Carla. Hi, Tyler. Hi, Tyler. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for being on Borderline Salty. Of course. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. (laughs) So we hear you have a fear. Can you please tell us about it? Yeah, so uh, I just really do not like mushroom texture. Mm -hmm. The texture feels like the sound of squeaking, if that makes sense. (laughs) That resonated on this end as well. We knew exactly what you were talking about. Nobody likes to eat squeaky things. Oh, no. I love (laughs) the taste. I love a, a taste of mushroom, but I can't do the texture. Okay, what kind of mushroom? How thick are you cutting them? Like, tell us about, like, the process. Yeah, and how are you cooking them, too? I've cooked with them once. It didn't go well because I just didn't cook them long enough, I guess. I don't even know what kind it is. I know there's... Uh a million kinds of mushrooms. And I know they're amazing for the planet and I want more with them. I want to have this good relationship with them, but I can't get on board. Got it. Here's what I've learned too. If I dice them very small, like that's fine, I think, Mm -hmm. but I don't really chew the food. I just kind of like swallow that food. (laughs) (laughs) So where's the fun in that? Right. One of the first things that I have learned that I love, and this is like my standard go-to getting a sear on a mushroom method. It's this idea that, you know, you start with a super hot skillet, right? So you want something that has a wide surface area, low walls, high heat, lots of oil. I typically use olive oil because butter will burn. You don't want to crowd the pan. So depending on how big your pan is, you may only want to start with like four, eight ounces, six ounces of mushrooms. Typically, I like to slice them. So no more than a quarter inch thick. Put them down in a nice even layer so everybody's touching flat on the the surface of the pan, and then just step back. You want to let them just sit there on the pan. Some of the water will start to evaporate. If your pan is very hot, you're going to seal that side of the mushroom. You're going to start to get some caramelization and some browning. That is going to concentrate all of those flavors. If you cut it thin enough, you're not going to get that offensive squeaky texture. But I would say, like, this is where you really need to look for the visual cue. Like, if the recipe says two minutes or five minutes or whatever, it doesn't matter because it's your kitchen and it's your pan. So take one mushroom, flip it over. If it looks beautiful and deep golden brown, it's ready to flip. If it looks, you know, white and yicky, then leave it there. Keep going. And then just, like, flip them all over and do the same thing on the other side. And you will have removed a lot of that moisture and you'll get this concentrated umami, mushroomy deliciousness. Yeah, that sounds really good. (laughs) (laughs) So I think the key with what everything Rick described is the mushroom itself has a good amount of water content. And if you don't cook that water off, you're going to feel that bouncy, squeaky, rubbery texture. So that's just that all of the cells are still filled with the mushroom liquid. So if you ever put your mushrooms in a pan and see, like, lots of steam and juices, they're going to get mushy and soft and squeaky. So you need space between them, lots of heat, a good amount of fat. Exactly. 
Another thing to keep in mind is when to salt your mushrooms. There's a lot of debate about this, but I think it's best to wait until you see some nice browning on them before you add the salt. But if you do that and you still don't like the texture that you're getting, then you could try adding salt at the very beginning, which will draw out the maximum amount of moisture right from the start. And you could get to a very crispy, almost bacony-like texture by the end. Speaking of bacon, I actually have a recipe, which I will put in the show notes, for a vegan bacony mushroom. This is super easy, and you can actually use just pre-sliced mushrooms that you would get at the grocery store. And it bakes for, I believe, about 45 minutes. And in that time... All the water is removed, and then you start to basically fry the mushrooms in the oven on the roasting pan. The result is very, very small. Like, they shrink a lot. But you get almost like bacon bits. Like, they're just crispy mushroom chips with a a lot of delicious olive oil and concentrated umami flavor. So those are really fun. You can use those as toppers for, you know, like eggs, soups, risotto, salads, whatever, you know, just eat them as chips like I do. Okay. I'm definitely willing to try. (laughs) Yes, we love that. Yeah, one thing we love is like you've had not great experiences, but the drive and the desire are still there, and we want to celebrate that. Me too. Don't give up on fungi. Oh, goodness. (laughs) I will say that like if you try all of those things and you just come to the conclusion that nope, I can't do this, I can't do the squeakiness, even if it's completely dehydrated. One thing that you can do to get that delicious flavor without the actual mushroom itself is you can use dried or ground mushrooms. Yeah. So, for example, like a dried shiitake, you can just add that to soups and sauces. And I really like porcini powder, which is like magic dust. And you just won't be able to stop eating it. And so, you know, beware, because you will stand at the stove and just be like, oh my God, why can't I stop eating this? And uh, it's that it's that magic mushroom powder. The fungus future is bright. Oh, <laughs> that was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tyler. This was so incredibly fun. Thank you for calling. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest Who Liberty stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimon Liai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. 
From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Before we go, it's time for No Thank You Please, the part of the show where we discuss the foods we maybe don't love yet and open ourselves up to giving them the try that they deserve. What's this week's No Thank You Please food, Carla? This week we're talking about blood sausage. (laughs) 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 So, Carla, where do you stand on blood sausage? I have to say, blood sausage is one of those ones. It doesn't come up that often, but it's it's a hard one for me. It is not my favorite. You say black pudding to me, and I'm like, don't sugarcoat this. This is a blood sausage. And I think for a long time I thought they called it blood sausage because it looked like blood or it. And then it was like, why do they call it blood sausage? And it's like, because it's a sausage made out of blood. And I was like, oh, (laughs) okay, walk slowly backwards out of the room. But my mom loves blood sausage, and so does my dad. So, like, I did grow up with it being made in the house. And all the food that my mom made was good. So I would go into these things with a lot of trust and optimism. And (laughs) that irony flavor that, like, you know, it's from the blood, but it's a tough one for me. See, I have the opposite reaction. I hear blood sausage and my heart starts to palpitate and I start sweating (laughs) and I'm like, oh, you know. I love it so much. I also feel like blood as an ingredient Mm -hmm. is such an important ingredient across almost every culture on this planet. Yeah. It stems from this need to use every part of the animal. And so when you're feeding a family or a village and you have a limited number of animals— you are going to use every part of it. You know, the fur, the intestines, all of the offal, the blood, the hooves, the head, everything. What's interesting to me is that you have an ingredient that is, you know, probably not palatable to most people. Even then, it was this thing that we have to make palatable so that we can use it and eat it. Mm -hmm. So what probably almost everybody in all of these cultures that have blood sausage did is... They added aromatics, they added fillers, they fermented, they smoked, they put it in casings, they made puddings. They did what they could to make it as good as possible. And I feel like, you know, if you put 10 different cultural versions of blood sausage in front of me right now, I would just eat with glee every dish because to me it would just be, you know, this like snapshot of what was grown, what was liked, what was accessible in each of these cultures. And I just, I love it. Yeah. So if you put the whole like buffet of, you know, the world's greatest blood sausages, you would dive in with delight knowing you were going to love every one. If you were to sit me down in front of all of them, I would go one from the next trepidatiously hoping that I would find the one that is delicious to me. And I want to try. And I also to your point, these foods that have so much history to them and that really in modern day are like a lost art. We don't eat the whole animal the way that we used to, and there are things that fall out of favor or whatever. So there's a craft to it and like a beauty to it, and it's a very acquired skill. Mm-hmm. I would probably be looking for condiments to balance that 
slightly bitter, irony flavor of the blood that I also pick up when I eat chicken liver. Mm -hmm. So acidic things, bright things, spicy things, not to like mask it or dunk it into a giant vat of, but to find the balance because I think that the predominantly irony flavor overwhelms a little bit. But I love condiments too. So, you know, this would be kind of a fun, crazy party. Okay, so next time I'm in New York, we're going to have a blood sausage party. (laughs) I love a good sausage party. (laughs) Sign me up. (laughs) That's it for this week's episode of Borderline Salty. But don't you worry, my little salties. We'll be back next week. You can find recipes and recommendations from this week's episode in our show notes. If you have a question or a fear you want us to help you through, you can always leave us a voicemail at 833-433-FOOD. That number again is 833-433-3663. Borderline Salty is an original production by Pineapple Street Studios. We're your hosts. I'm Rick Martinez. I'm Carla Lolly Music. You can find links to our work in the show notes for this episode. Natalie Brennan is our lead producer. Janelle Anderson is our producer. Our managing producer is Agarena Shashagre. Our assistant producer is Mari Orozco. Our head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. Original music from our very own Raj Makija. Additional music from Vincent Vega, Spring Gang, and Glovebox, courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Mixing and engineering by Davy Sumner and Jason Richards. Our assistant engineers are Sharon Bardales and Jade Brooks. Legal services for Pineapple Street are provided by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. Our executive producers are Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. We appreciate Sarah, Derek, Austin, and Tyler for calling in this week. And thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Ciao for now. Adios. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Mwah. <laughs> <laughs>